You're listening to the Mill Sunday School Podcast. Galatians chapter 1 is uh, where Paul talks to the, the church in Galatia, and he, he kind of rebukes them for believing differently than that what they know. They know truth, but they're believing something different. I want to read verses, uh, it's, I guess it's about 6 through 9 in the message version, which is a, a, a kind of a paraphrase of the Bible. It's, it's really, it flows really well and uh, uses words that we would use today, um, very common English words. And so Galatians chapter 1, verses uh, 6 through 9 says this, I can't believe your fickleness. I can't believe your fickleness. How easy you have turned a traitor to him who called you by the grace of Christ and embraced a variant message. It's not a minor variation, you know. It's completely other, an alien message, a no message, a lie about God. These Galatians have, have, have been following something different. They know the truth. They know the good news, the message, and now they're, they're following a different way. And it says, those who are provoking this agitation among you are turning the message of Christ on its head. Let me be blunt. If any of us, or even if an angel from heaven were to preach something other than what was preached originally, let him be cursed. I said it once, I'll say it again. If anyone, regardless of reputation, credentials, preaches something other than what you received originally, let him be cursed. Let's pray this morning. Father, we do come before you. God, we thank you for your word to us. We thank you for truth. We thank you that the Mill Sunday School is a place where we can gather and learn more about you, learn the deep truths of who you are and what you've done on this earth. God, we we glorify you right now. We worship you with our minds and our hearts. We open our lives up to you. We're ready to receive who you are and more truth about you. We love you and we do praise you. And everyone screamed. Amen. Amen. His dad caught him writing something on the wall when he was like 12 years old. His name's Pascal. Anybody heard of Pascal? This guy in the 1600s, a brilliant mathematician. At the age of 11, he composed a short treatise on the... So he's 11 years old. I don't know what you were doing when you, when you were 11, but he was uh, composing a short treatise on the mathematical properties of vibrations, a huge like mathematical um, achievement. Someone, if someone wrote that, it'd be like, oh, this is a lifetime achievement. He did it when he was 11 years old. He was a child prodigy, um, could do math and relate mathematical equations to the real world and happenings very easily in his head, a true child prodigy, a genius. And his father, uh, because he was spending so much time in math, his dad told little Pascal, and this this is the 1600s, no more math until you learn your Greek and your Latin. So you're not allowed to do math anymore. You've got to catch up on your Greek and Latin homework. And so one day his dad caught him writing a math. This mathematical equation was the proof of the sum of the angles of the triangle are equal to the two right angles. So he's writing this equation out with a piece of coal, like secretively on the, on a wall. And his dad caught him and punished him. I don't know what you were doing when you were 12 or what your dad caught you doing when you were 12. It was like writing your own name on the wall or stealing candy. 
Uh, Pascal is just this genius mathematically, um, just this mind for order and arguments and equations. And in, in his life, he became a Christian and was a huge asset to the, the Christian cause and making it very applicable to his day and using proofs. And there's something called the Pascal Wage, which is, um, I'm going to read it a couple times it's, it's, and then talk about what it actually means. So Pascal came up with this wage, uh, like a wager almost, and it said this, Should a man be an error in supposing the Christian religion to be true, he could not be a loser by mistake. But how irreparable his loss and how inexplainable the danger uh, who should err in erring in supposing that it is false. I'll read it one more time. It's a lot of, I mean, it's written by a guy that was like a child prodigy. Uh, Should a man be an error in supposing the Christian religion to be true, error and to be true, he should not be a loser by mistake. But how irreparable his loss, how inexplainable the danger of those who err in supposing that it is false. So basically what that means is, let's say there's a Christian believing there's a God, believing that the, the Bible is true, believing in morality and, and the morals of the Bible. So a Christian believes in all that. And an atheist, let's say, is someone that, that believes there is no God, there's really no purpose, meaning there's, there's no moral law, no moral lawgiver. And so, so an atheist and a Christian, um, at the end of their life, they're going to die, and, and one's going to be right, one's, the other one's going to be wrong. If the Christian is wrong, so a Christian lives their life loving God, living by the moral standards of the Bible, lives a good life, uh, believes in a God. But in the end, if, if a Christian dies and, and finds out that, they're, that the atheist is right, Pascal says, then, then when he dies, there's nothing. There's no afterlife. There's no meaning. There's no purpose. There's nothing. And so the Christian was wrong. But even by the atheist standards, well, the Christian lived a good life. They lived a full life. And so a Christian wasn't a loser by believing in a Christian faith. Their only mistake was believing in a God that really didn't exist. So this is Pascal's ways, just kind of. um, the, The other side is an atheist believing that there's no God, believing that there's no meaning, there's no morals, lives to that standard in their life. Um, when they die, if they find out that they have been wrong, then Pascal says how irreparable their loss, how inexplainable the danger of those who err, of of a non-believer, of an atheist that believes there is no God, there's no morals, there's no meaning. If they die and realize there is a God, how, how dangerous that is how regretful they will be. And so that's, that's called the Pascal Wager. Um, it's, it's something he came up. You could tell it's a very scientific, kind of thoughtful mind to come up with that idea. But today we're going to be talking about truth and, and how we arrive at truth. And I'll come back to that Pascal equation in just a minute. But uh, before that, some announcements, shall we? You know, they're fun. If you're newish to the Mill Sunday School, we have these cards on, uh, most of the tables have them. Pick up a card, uh, fill it out, uh, give it to the nice people back there by the curtain. They'll give you a CD as a gift. Thank you for coming. We'll put you on the Mill email list, send you things every once in a while. No big deal. Um, And so we would love for you to fill that out, to have your information. I could call you and email you uh, if you would like. But we're glad that you're here. We're glad that you came to the Mill Sunday School today. Make sure you get some breakfast on the way out if you didn't on the way in. Those are, that's, uh, so that's if you're newish. Uh, the Mill Fall Retreat. Anybody going to the first weekend? Anybody going to the second weekend? It's about half and half-ish. 
Yeah, we have two weekends. The camp can't hold all of us. There'll, there'll be about 600 of us up there, 300 at each weekend-ish. And so you don't want to miss that weekend. Everybody will be there. There'll be no mill. There'll be no Sunday school on both of those weekends. The mill flower treat is awesome. It's a, it, we're at a camp, but for the, we're not going to be camping. It's like good food, good beds. You'll sleep, you know. And we have showers, and it's awesome. It's, it's, in fact, it's such a cool facility that we decided let's stay there and do two weekends as opposed to going to a different, shadier retreat location. So, anyways, that's why we do that. Um, so those are your announcements. I think that's all I got. Let's dive right into uh, truth. Uh, in your notes, if you, have, uh, if, you brought your, if you got notes when you came in today, the, the first point is review of truth and doctrine. And this whole month, we've been talking about truth uh, and doctrine. And we've, we, I kind of mentioned that doctrine is sometimes kind of a bad word. Like people hear doctrine and they're like, oh, what do you mean by doctrine? You mean tradition or you mean some authority telling me what I have to believe? Some authority telling me, no, you've you got to believe like this. This is correct doctrine. You are in false doctrine. And, and we talked a, lot, a couple times ago about how doctrine shouldn't be this bad word. Doctrine is simply anything that you believe. And as Christians, we have a lot of beliefs about who God is, that the Bible is true. And all those things make up doctrine. And then last time we talked about truth, that we as Christians do believe in truth. And we almost have to say, when, when we say truth to the outside world, we're, we're having coffee or conversation with a non-believer, and we say truth, they hear the word truth like, like it's been said, but they have this meaning like, oh, what's true for you is true for you, but I could believe something that's also true for me, and they could be contradictory. And so last time we went into this huge talk about how we as Christians almost have to add the word absolute when we're talking about truth, because we believe that truth is absolute, that it's always true, it doesn't matter if you believe it or not. Something is still true. It's, it's always true. And so we as Christians believe in absolute truth. We believe that um, if there is truth, which that we, we believe there is, um, today we're going to talk about, take the other, next step and say, how do we know when something is true? If something is true, we should be able to explain to a non, non-believing friend, you know, if they ask us, why are you a Christian? Why do you believe that God, you know, God exists and the Bible's true. We should have answers. We should be ready to defend our faith. We should be ready to explain it to ourselves. Why, why are we Christians? Why do we believe that God exists? We should know something about truth. And today we're going to talk a little bit about that, kind of give you this awesome tool, I think it's awesome, of how we could explain truth to someone, how we could ex- d- defend it in our own mind. Maybe you're in here and you're just coming to Sunday school and you're like, what's new life about? What's the mill about? Um, today should be um, a very simple way of saying that we have have four, you know, I'm going to show you this quadrilateral. We have four reasons as to why we believe what we believe, why we can come to an idea and say it is true. Uh, going back to Pascal's wage, you know, we have a lot more, as Christians, we have a lot more than just this wager. We're not just saying, well, if an atheist dies and, and they, they're wrong, then, you know, they're, they're regrettable, you know, they have a regretful life. But if a Christian dies, and, and, but they're really wrong, there is no God, then no big deal. They just worshiped a, f- a false God. Um, we have a lot more than that as Christians as to why we believe. Right? Okay, so I'm going to show you um, the Wesleyan quadrilateral. This is awesome. First, I have to tell you about who John Wesley is. Do you know who John Wesley is? Anybody ever heard of his name before? David Perkins really likes John Wesley. I'll tell you about that in a second. But John Wesley uh, grew up in England, 
in uh, maybe the 16th, actually 1700, in the 1700s, grew up in England. Um, he became an Anglican minister. Anglican is very uh, like high church. Maybe some of you come from Anglican churches or have been to Anglican churches. It's very Catholic, very high church, very traditional. And he became an Anglican pastor and um, was on a mission trip. So he's from England on a mission trip to the United States to, to, to witness to the colonies at that point. We weren't the United States yet in the 1700s. Um, and he was somewhere outside of Georgia, about to land in Georgia to, to be a minister and a, and a missionary. And he talks about this in his journal, that there was a huge, like, shit, the, the storm. And he felt like they were about to wreck. And maybe they were. I mean, back then there was no, like, motors. I mean, all that got you from England to America was, like, a tarp, <laughs> a sail. I mean, it's, and so you're very subject to the ocean, and shipwrecks happened all the time. They still do. It's, it's you know, you get out on open seas, the storm, it's dangerous. And so he's in the middle of this shipwreck on this boat with all these other uh, people, uh, people that were missionaries, people that were just on the boat, you know, set, setting sail. And he's afraid for his life. He's doubting whether God, God is real. He's having all these doubts and emotions and fear. And he looks over in the boat. He writes about this in his journal, and he sees a group of other missionaries, not with him, but a, another group of Christian missionaries called the Moravians. Have you heard of the Moravians? Um, it's this awesome group of people in the 17, 1600s that were very adamant about, very passionate about God. They were uh, charismatic, Pentecostal, speaking in tongues, believing in the gifts of the Spirit way back in the day. And they were known for being huge missionaries, having ongoing prayer, a 24-hour prayer. They were actually uh, the first recorded group of Christians that had a ministry to the slaves in this country and witnessed and, and uh, witnessed to the slaves here. And so John Wesley's on this shipwreck. He thinks he's about to die, full of fear, doubting God, doubting whether God can help him. And he sees this group of missionaries, the Moravians, sitting around calm, praying, thanking God that they're going to survive and live through it. And he just wondered, well, you know, where's my faith? I want a faith like that. And he actually talks about how he was converted at that moment. I mean, here, here's a guy that's an Anglican minister, a pastor, and he talks about how like a new, a new conversion that happened in his heart, a brand new step uh, towards God that he had never taken before. And I hear stories like that uh, of, of some of us today that and I hear stories of people that say that they went to church their whole life, and then, but they would they come to a moment in their life when they really have to decide if they're going to believe. And they'll look back and say, man, I lived my whole life in church, but I didn't believe until now. What was I doing you know, up until this point? And so he has this, as he calls it in his journals, almost a second conversion, and he becomes very passionate about Christ. He goes back to England. He starts something called the Holy Club with his, brothers, uh, with his brother Charles Wesley and a group of people at Oxford, Oxford University in the 1700s. They would, uh, so he's a college student now. So he's... Um, uh, in this holy club, they would fast on Wednesdays and Fridays till three. They would have Holy Communion once a week. Uh, they would study Greek, New Testament. They would study the classics. They would meet in each other's rooms. They visited uh, prisoners. They visited the sick. And they systematically all brought their lives under strict review. Sounds like a cool club, huh? It's like John Wesley was there. 
That'd be pretty sweet as a, of a club. And people that were, you know, knew this club was going on, this holy club was going on, called them. You guys are so methodical about what you do and how you do it. They kind of slammed them with the term, like, you guys are just Methodists. Like, because you have all these Methodists, methods and ways in which you uh, have to do things. It's so structured. And they took that, instead of a slam, they took that as, yeah, we're the Methodists. We have methods. And so that's, you realize that John Wesley's one of the founders of the Methodist Church, and that's where the Methodist Church comes from. But John Wesley, this devout, you know, Anglican pastor that's very organized, very strict, and takes all these strictness and methods, and, um, and at the same time brings passion to the Lord, and comes up with something called the Wesleyan Quadrilateral that we'll talk about in a minute. Um, but before that, I have to talk about David Perkins, because David Perkins really likes John Wesley. David Perkins always jokes. You know who David is, right? furnace pastor. He's kind of short, really short. And John Wesley was also really short. And so I'm thinking, like, David just likes John because he was short, and he was passionate for God. And like the furnace is kind of like the holy club that John Wesley did. It's very... So David Perkins, modern day John Wesley. I think he would, hopefully he would take it as a compliment if he knew I'd said that. But uh, yeah, anyways, that's, that's who John Wesley is. And John Wesley said this, that truth, this is, by the way, you're, if you're looking, if you have a skillet, we call these Sunday school millets. Uh, on the back, there's always a quote. And uh, truth, it says, was revealed in Scripture, illuminated by tradition, verified in personal experience, and confirmed by reason. This is John Wesley talking about truth and Christian beliefs and, and what we believe. Truth was revealed in Scripture. So there's four parts here that I want you to see. Illuminated, uh, revealed in Scripture, illuminated by tradition, verified in personal experience, and uh, confirmed with reason. And so what I want to do now, if you're taking notes, is to draw what's kind of on, on the second page of your notes. This is the Wesleyan quadrilateral. Wesley, because John Wesley kind of came up with it with his order and strict and methods and, you know, with his passion for the Lord, came up with this. It's called a quadrilateral because there's four points. And this is a tremendous tool. You'll walk away with this tool, and next time someone asks you, you know, why do you believe in truth? Why do you believe in Christianity? You'll have kind of four reasons, four things to work with. And so all this is is a tool, a way of looking at things, a simplified analogy of how we know what we know. And so in the center here, so there's a circle you see this big circle in your notes? It has the Wesleyan quadrilateral. In, inside there, you could also put the word truth. So how do we know what is true? How do we, um, if something is true, how do we know it's true? How do we explain that it's true? Um, what makes it true? And, and there's four points. I'm going to list all of them so you could have them all in your notes, and then we'll talk about each one. And so at the top, I'm going to put the word Bible. Uh, I'll put on, uh, I'll put, I'll put the word community over here. Uh, Wesley actually calls it tradition, revealed by scripture, illuminated by tradition. But I'm going to put the word community because, because it's maybe community slash tradition if you're taking notes and want to be exact. Um, and then verified in personal experience. I'm going to put the word experience over here. Experience. I almost spelled it wrong. Be horrible. Everyone would be laughing at me. Brutal. Is that right? Okay, good. Uh, and then at the bottom, I, I'm going to put the word reason. R E A S O N. So truth 
So truth is, uh, as, as said by Wesley, revealed in Scripture, illuminated by tradition or community, verified in personal experience, and confirmed by reason. And so the Bible here, I'll move so you could keep writing that down. The Bible is, is at the top, and there's a reason why it's at the top, because it is the best, it is the most accurate way that we have of knowing eternal truths. God, the, the creator of this world, the sustainer of this world, gave us the Bible through authors, uh, human authors, so that we can know who he is, so that we can know truth, so that we can know his will and what he wants us to know. And, and our beliefs come ultimately by scripture, right? Right. And so there's this verse uh, that is pretty popular about scripture. It's, it's uh, 2 Timothy 3.16. It says, all scripture is God-breathed. Do you know this verse? All Scripture is God-breathed. It's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And so it's like the Bible says it's true. But if you're, if you're talking to a non-believer and saying, you know, why, do, why do you believe the Bible's true? And you show them that verse, it's just like the ultimate roundabout way. Like, why is the Bible true? Well, it says it's true. It's like, well, do you have anything outside the Bible that says it's true? And yes, by the way, there's a lot of evidence outside of the Bible that says the Bible's true. One of my favorite proofs is that the Bible is composed of about 40-plus authors, different people through all walks of life, spanning uh, different, like, you know, there's princes that have written books of the Bible, fishermen, kings, poor people, rich people, slaves, government officials, they all have had their hand in writing the Bible. So it's 40-plus authors. They come from different continents, different countries, spanning more than 10,000 years of time, from Moses to to Paul, or, you know, maybe less than 10,000, but thousands of years of time. And it's all the same message. Despite the, the author whom God used to write a particular book, it's all the same message. One book doesn't say, God, there is a God, and Jesus is his son. And then another book of the Bible says, uh, believe whatever you want, there is no God. It's like, no, there's one continuous message in the Bible that doesn't contradict itself in any major theological point of any kind. And so we have that. We have prophecies, which I find are fascinating, especially the ones about Jesus. You could show someone in the Old Testament, written thousands of years before the New Testament, prophecies about the coming Messiah, how the coming Messiah was going to be born of a virgin. You know anybody in history born of a virgin? Do you know anybody in history? It says in the Old Testament that the Messiah will come through Bethlehem. That's pretty cool. You know anybody that's a virgin? I mean, know anybody that's a... (laughs) Can I get a show of hands? <laughs> oh my gosh, what a disaster. What a disaster of a sentence. Uh, do you know anyone in history who claimed their mom was a virgin, claimed that they came from Bethlehem? Uh, it, it says in the Old Testament that the Messiah would be Jewish, that it would come from the tribe of David, uh, that the, the Messiah would suffer for our sins. Do you know anyone in history that fulfills all those equations um, brought about by the prophecies written hundreds and thousands of years before Jesus came? It's like, Jesus, he fulfills those prophecies that were written about uh, him hundreds of thousands of years before he actually came. This book is awesome. And historical evidence. There, there's no historical archaeology of any kind that disproves what the Bible has to say. I mean, the Bible talks about like a city in Jerusalem and a temple that was there. You can go today to Jerusalem and see remains of the temple that was there. You can see remains of many of the things talked about in the Bible. To compare that with our, with our friends who are Mormon, Mormons uh, have the Book of Mormon and it says that 
There was things that happened here in the continental United States, the, the lost Jewish tribe, and there was cities and temples and on and on. Um, and there's, there's no, we can't find any historical evidence for things happening here in the continental United States that actually, actually took place in the Book of Mormon. And if you ask a Mormon, I have, I have friends that are Mormon, you know, why isn't there any historical, archaeological proof for anything happening in the Book of Mormon here on the continental United States? They'll say, well, well it hasn't been found yet. We're still researching and archaeology is yet to prove the Book of Mormon. And that's, that's a little shady to me. The Bible's so much clearer than that when it comes to historical evidence. You can go to actual cities talked about in the Bible and find ruins and, and et cetera, et cetera. Um, so the Bible, the Bible is, is our number one. If, if someone says something uh, contrary to Scripture, we would say, well, Scripture holds more authority than what you have to say because Scripture has held its ground for thousands of years. Scripture has proven to be true again and again historically. Uh, the prophecies, uh, what it does when we read it in our own hearts and minds. And it's, it's our book as Christians. It's our book. So it, it stays on top as the Bible. Um, let's talk about uh, community, our tradition um, next. So under here, you could put some notes. You know, scientists are always talking about, you know, what separates us from the animals? And as Christians, we have an easy answer to that. We would say the imago Dei, this Latin phrase for we are built with the image of God inside of us. We're, we're spiritual beings that have the image of God. But, you know, scientists want to like look, look at, you know, like, okay, what practically, what can we actually see and experiment on makes humans different than animals? And there's always lots of things brought to the table in that discussion. But one thing that continually is brought to the table is that humans can pass on information to those that come ne- next or after them or their children. For instance, when uh, like a new, genera- new generation comes about, when you're born, you don't have to like reinvent how to make fire or the wheel. Or you don't have to reinvent things. We can pass on information, talk about it, pass on that information, write books, pass on information. And so in the same way, we as Christians have passed on information. You know, the Bible is basically a book of of letters and and history of passed on knowledge that we have um, of God. In the same way that we can pass on the truth about how to make a fire— we could pass on the truth of Scripture and the truth of, of what we believe as Christians. And, um, you know, Catholics, our, our friends who are Catholic, uh, hold tradition as high as the Bible. For instance, if, if the Pope says something or if a council came to a decision, they would hold those decisions as high as the Bible. But what if the council says something different than the Bible? What if a pope says something different than the Bible? What do you do? Well, as us, as Protestants, we would say the Bible only. The Latin phrase sola scriptura. We only hold to the Bible as our ultimate authority. And so if a church leader said something that contradicted the Bible, what would we go with? The Bible every time. Because the, the truth doesn't contradict itself, and ultimately we hold the Bible higher than what someone says, higher than church tradition, higher than our community. But yet still, community is important. It is a way of finding and exploring truth, living out truth. That's why I think church is so important. I know in a big church over there at 1130, Brady's still on the, his series, The Tribe of Church, talking about the importance of ecclesia and, and uh, koinonia and how we, we gather together and how we live in community because we learn from each other. We, we grow and we do life with one another. We live out what is true and we share what is true with one another. So that's community. So we've talked about the Bible, community, 
Then the next is personal experience. I want you to think about this question and then maybe raise your hand if you feel okay doing that. But how many of you would say that in some way, whether a vision, a leading of God, uh, an intuition, maybe a calling, maybe uh, you just felt like in some way uh, God has spoken to you or has spoken to you at any time in the past, but you know that you know you know that God spoke to you. It doesn't have to be audible. It could be an intuition. How many of you would say you had an experience where God maybe showed you something? Lots of us have. And so this, this is a legitimate way of, of knowing what is truth, of knowing God's will, of knowing uh, of, of what is true and what is false. We can, we can experience it. We can have an experience. Um, I, I can't remember who said this, but someone asked uh, a Christian leader, why do you believe in God? And their answer was just so simple. So why do you believe in God? Well, I, I just spoke with him this morning, was, was his answer. And I thought, that's a cool answer. It's like, why do you believe? I just spoke to him. That's why. Um, but it comes with experiencing. You, you, you believe in God because you experience him. You have the Bible. You know that this Christian community has, has shown you truth, um, but you've experienced him. And so we can know truth by experience. Um, God uses all, all throughout scripture. If you think about the stories in the Bible, God is continuously, constantly speaking with his ap- apostles and prophets and people in the Bible. You know, thus saith the Lord, God spoke to me. You know, Moses, on and on, all through the Bible, God is speaking to people. It's still happening today. God does speak to us in, in, in many different ways. And it's a legitimate form of knowing what is true. It's not the only. It doesn't, you know, if you, if you had an experience that contradicts Bible, what do you go with? Bible every time. Um, and so, so that's experience. Finally, at the bottom here is reason. God has given us a mind. We can make logical arguments to find out what is true. You know, throughout history, the Christian tradition has people like Thomas Aquinas who came up with the five proofs of God. We could talk about that some other time at the Mill Sunday School. But the, the proofs for God, there was Isaac Newton who came up with the laws of physics and studied motion on the earth and outside the planetary motions because he believed that by studying what was happening around him, he was getting into the hands of God and what God had created because there was order. Uh, there's people like C.S. Lewis our homeboy, uh, that talked about moral law. And since there's moral law, there's moral law giver and came up with, the, uh, not theological, philosophical uh, ideas and reasons for the existence of God. The guy that we talked about earlier today, Pascal, Pascal's wage, using reason to say that there must be a God. If there isn't a God, you know, there's this wage and on and on. Philosophers, we use, we use our, our reason to know what is truth. But the bottom line, the reason why that reason is on the bottom, lower than Bible, community experience, is because Scripture teaches us, like Ephesians 1.18, Paul is telling the Corinthians that, that the message of the cross is foolishness. Have you heard this verse before? The message of the cross, the truth of the gospel, of the eternal God and how salvation works, the message of the cross is foolishness to those that are perishing, but to us being saved, it is the power of God. And Paul, again, in chapter, uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, talks about how truth has been veiled to the, to the eyes of the world. But we, as believers, truth is unveiled to us. And so reason all on its own can lead us to things that are wrong. When I was in college, I uh, graduated with a, a bio, I was a biology major way back in the day. Um, it's, it's a great degree to get if you ever want to be a pastor someday. <laughs> 
but I didn't know what I was doing. So, but I, I actually, I, I'm thankful that I took biology because now I have this, you know, I know a lot about the Bible and I have all these weird knowledges about biology, uh, which I wouldn't have got if I just went to all Bible school the whole time. But uh, when I was a biology major, we would, we had these classes where, you know, we didn't just do science, but we talked about the philosophy of science. Uh, I took this science history class, the history of science, and it was fascinating. We talked about, you know, what does science really claim to do? Does science ever claim to have found truth? And, and like one of the first lessons we took in that class is, is does science claim to have found truth ever? It's like, no, science does never claims to have truth. Science merely claims to have the best uh, theory of the day of how something works. But we don't just stop there. We don't just say, yeah, we found a really good method for, for the reasons why this works like it does. Do we stop there and say we found truth? No, science says, let's exper- experiment on it some more. Let's add some more variables and equations to see if, the, if, those still, if, the, if this idea, this theory still holds true to how this works. Science never claims to have truth, only the, the very best of, of, its, of its day, the best method, the best theory for how something works. And so that, that's why reason is on the bottom. But don't, you know, don't let me just say, oh yeah, reason's down at the bottom near the trash. No, reason is still a great way to know what is true. We can use our minds that God has given us to know what is true. And so here's what I want to ask you with just a few minutes of discussion. Some of you love discussion. Some of you go get coffee during discussion. That's totally fine. But I, I do want you to think about it. And this question is, is more of a personal question. So if you, if, you, if you just want to think about it on your own and then uh, converse with someone later, that's totally fine. But I want you to think of this question. Which one of these, so looking at the, the Wesleyan quadrilateral, which one of these did you, did you find... Uh, personally, the most real for you when you became a Christian. If you have in your story, your testimony, you have, you know, like a time or a season when you decided to believe in God and the Bible and Jesus, which one helped you the most in finding truth? Did someone hand you a Bible and and say, you know, you should read the, the book of John. The book of John is a simple message of who Jesus was. And so as you were reading the book of John, God opened up to you that this is true and you began to believe because someone gave you a Bible. Maybe community for you was the most important. Maybe you started going to a youth group where maybe the youth group was this first place that you felt at home and felt like you had a family and you knew something was different about your youth group. Everyone was, was nice and, and happy and, and loved you unconditionally or whatever it was. And so you wanted to know more about what they believed. And so God used community to help you find truth. Maybe, I know there's some of you that had an experience, something in your life um, radically, you experienced something radically. Maybe it was a dream or uh, maybe God spoke to you in a way or led you to something or God used experience for you to find the truth of the Christian message. Uh, And for some of you, it's going to be reason. Maybe someone philosophically argued with you until you're like, yeah, I guess there is a God. And if there is a God, then I guess he loves us because he did create us. And so maybe someone philosophized with you. And that, that was the biggest thing that changed your heart into believing the truth. So I want you to think about that personally. Like what what for me was the, was the most important in coming to know truth? And then maybe share that with your group uh, very briefly so that you can get to a few different people. Sound fun? All right, ready, get set, go.
check, check, check. Let me give you like 60 seconds just to wrap up. All right. Um, the the. Hopefully you shared. Maybe for some of you, did, did everyone pick exactly? Some of you, it's like, man, God used the community I was with, and I also was reading the Bible. But I just kind of want to get a, a show of hands. If you had to pick one, if you if you couldn't pick between two, how many of you would say the Bible was most influential in your conversion? A couple hands. I see those hands. How many of you would say reason was the most? Like someone philosophized, awesome, I see those hands. Just a few. That's exactly what I thought. I thought these two would be the huge. I think this one will be the hugest. We'll see if I'm correct. Uh, how many of you thought uh, you had an experience? Oh, that looks like that might win. We'll see, though. How many of you would say community? Yeah, maybe experience is the best. Wow, that surprises me, actually. That, com- that it, most of you have had some sort of personal experience in your, in your salvation, some event that you would say was foundational to you in discovering the truth. That's pretty cool, actually. That surprises me, but awesome. Um, the next point in your notes, um, this last point in your notes, it says, a strand of four is not easily broken. And using maybe just clinging on to just one of these could be potentially a little dangerous. If the only way you know truth is just by one of these, it may be a little dangerous. I, how many of you have ever rock climbed in here? This is Colorado. I mean, every hand should go up at least once. You know, should go rock climbing, get scared and <laughs> have to rappel back down. It's awesome. I used to rock climb a whole bunch. And then I had a friend who fell like 60 feet. He lived, but he like bounced off some rocks and broke his toe and leg or something. And uh, I was like, people do get hurt rock climbing. People die rock climbing. Do I really want to do this? Um, and, and you rock climbers know that if you're, if you're leading a route, that means you're the first one up, you have the rope, have a harness on you, the rope's behind you, and you're clipping in as you go. So if you fall, you can only fall so far. Um, when you get to the top of the route, you're looking for an anchor, uh, maybe bolts. Like if you're climbing at the Garden of the Gods, you, there, people have gone before and drilled in or hammered in these bolts. And if you get to the top of the route and there's just one rusty, loose little bolt, does that scare you? You're looking down, you see like your friends way down there. They're like, there's one rusty bolt. That's scary. That's really scary. To put your full weight, to put your carabiner on that one little loose rusty bolt, to put your full weight on that one bolt and to rappel back down, right? In the same way, putting all your trust on one of these could potentially be dangerous. It's better when you're rock climbing, you get to the top and okay, there's two bolts, Maybe they're both a little old and rusty and, and wiggly, but at least you're like, well, at least there's two. At least each bolt is going to hold half of my weight, and if one really does come out, at least there's one more. It's still scary, but at least now there's two. And you get to the top of, of a route, and there's three bolts. That's, that's normal. That's what's normal. Okay, there's three bolts up there. You could bolt into all three of them. All, you know, one-third of your weight is being held by each one of the bolts. Even if they're all a little rusty and old, you're like, well, at least there's three. At least if one comes down, there's still two left over to hold my weight. And if you got to the top of a route and there was four, you'd almost be like, why is there four? What in the world? There's so many. I need to just choose a couple here. Um, because it's like, it's like 
my, when, I, when I started climbing, I would, I would climb with these guys that said, you know, you want something that's going to be bomb-proof. Four bolts would be bomb-proof. I don't know what that meant, but it's like it's bomb-proof. That means you could, you could climb on it and you could rappel back down. And so in the same way, using, you know, not holding to just one of these as the only way of knowing truth is, is wise. It's safe to have more than one. For instance, um, I knew a, uh, all of these kind of come from my college experience, my college years, but the time when I was really learning and testing what was true. And I remember this girl in college. She was a Christian. She came from a good family. She came from a church. Um, um, but, and she had a friend, I believe it was a friend, had passed away pretty recently and, and was buried in this, this cemetery close to the college. And she would go, she would walk from the college to the cemetery and just go grieve and, and spend time at their grave. She said at one, one time that the sun was going down and then the sun went down and it was dark and she's in a cemetery at the dark. And she said, you know, at first she got really scared, but she just kept sitting there. And she said she had this experience where she would close her eyes and she believed like the spirits uh, in the ground were talking to her and telling her that the Bible's not really true, that there's different things um, to believe and that, that she needs to believe something else. There is no heaven. You know, there, you, there all these things, she believed that she was having this experience. And so she was this like, you know, she wasn't like goth girl, but she was spending evenings and nights, maybe one or two nights a week in the cemetery because of this experience she would have. And I was just like, first of all, that's freaky. That's weird. Second of all, you know, you're relying way too much on, on an experience. You know, you're closing your eyes and getting this feeling. God speaks to us in other ways, and especially if two things are contradictory, your experience and the Bible. You go with the Bible. You're leaning way too much on just experience alone. Another example, um, I knew some dudes in college. They were like this dorm room group. There was like 10 dudes. And they met in the dorm, the, one of their rooms. And they would have pizza. And they would talk about the Bible. It was like a Bible study, accountability group. I forget what they were called. We made fun of them though, because they were pretty weird. And they would have pizza and soda. And, um, and then they, they got this idea that, man... We should take communion with, with pizza and soda. And, and so that's, I mean, whatever, whatever that's worth. They, they decided that pizza and soda was the way they wanted to take communion. Their, their argument was, well, you know, Jesus took communion with bread and, and wine. That was kind of his popular food of the day. The popular food for college days for them was pizza and soda. So they took communion with pizza and soda. And then they took it to another level and said, you know, we really should. We really have to take it with pizza and soda. And they, they t- this little group, you know, all kind of sharing the same ideas. Have you ever heard of group think when like one person has an idea and it kind of just flows and stays within that little community? Um, this group said, yeah, if you're not taking communion with pizza and soda, then, you, then you're doing it all wrong and you might not be saved. I mean, they, they didn't really say it like that strongly, but it got to be weird. And in this little community, in this, I mean, it, it, I literally, I would hear, because some of my friends were in it, it honestly got a little cultish. It got a little weird. Uh, they, they, were, they decided, it was like a group of 10 guys, they decided that, that uh, they didn't want to date, and so they held each other to the strict accountability of not dating at all, ever. Um, and so it's just a weird little group of guys, and it, it got cultish. It got, and, and you know, looking at this equation, I would say, you know, first of all, there's, there's a bigger community. There's the bigger church community that you need to be a part of, not this, you know, weird little 
cultish dorm group, and, so, and others, you know, and, and then outside of that, there's the Bible and experience and reason. Maybe those guys need to experience something outside of that little group um, spiritually to learn from others, um, to grow, to, to read the Bible on their own outside of this, honestly, a little cult. And so, and so there, there was that. Um, I, I knew, uh, let's see, I knew a guy, lots of guys and girls, when I was getting my science major that were atheists, strict evolutionists, atheists, and they would say, you know, I need empir- if I'm going to believe in a God, I, it needs to be scientifically testable. And I was like, well, you know, it doesn't work like that. You know, in some ways I, I would say, you know, in some ways everything around us is proof of God, but you're seeing it as there's no proof of God. And so for them, they wanted to, that God could be verifiable and testable. And for them, I was like, you know, maybe you're leaning too much on on reason alone. Haven't you ever experienced anything that, you know, transcended a verifiable, testable event in your life? You know, and and so so there was that. And the final one, leaning too much towards the Bible, might be if, um, you know, someone someone tried to take everything literally in the Bible. A couple weeks ago, we, we talked about that passage uh, women must remain silent in the churches in First Corinthians, and for us to take that totally literally and just start doing that would be to 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 refuse to believe that you know. Well, what about the community that Paul was talking about? What about our experience? How how women are totally one hundred percent the same educated as men today, not like they were in the ancient times. What about reason that goes to say you know things were different back then as they are now? Uh, you're, maybe you're leaning too much on on just a literal translation of the Bible. Now, don't get me wrong here; the Bible still remains at the top, but it needs to be. We need to have hermeneutics and exegesis to explore the truths in the Bible. So determining truth, um, we use all four. Do you want a really good example that might hit too close to home for some of you? <laughs> some of you are like, don't do it. Okay. Um, dating. Everybody say, oh. Here, here's just a quick thought I have. Uh, many times, I hear all the, all the time, and this would be an exaggerated example, but let's say a guy sees a girl, let's say a guy goes to college, he sees a girl in the class, and, and he's praying one day, and he thinks, he believes that he heard that God said, him and that girl are going to get married. So he has, all, he's, all he has is this big experience, right? That, oh man, he and this girl are going to get married. Now, um, if you use the Bible to, okay, so, so basically we're determining truth. What is the will of God? Is it really the will of God for this guy to marry this girl? Because he thinks he believes he has this feeling uh, of her when he prayed about her. It's like, well, let's run that idea through other, through the other methods in the, in the quadrilateral. You know, what does this, what does the Bible say about finding a, a spouse or a mate? Well, it has a lot to say about, you know, the godliness. Proverbs 31, about a godly wife. Has this guy at all, you know, does he even know this girl? First of all, he doesn't even know the girl. He just saw the girl in class. Is she even a Christian? Who knows? All he had was an experience. Bro, you're leaning way too much on this experience. Find out if she's even a Christian, if she's godly. And then, well, what about your community? Get to, get to know this girl, and, and, you know, invite her to dinner with your parents. What do your parents, honestly, say about this girl? Because truth, you know, God's will can be revealed through community. What does your pastor say? What does your small group leader say? You're looking at your accountability leaders. What do you guys think of this girl? Oh, you think she's psycho? You think she's crazy and ungodly? Well, you should... You should take that seriously and not just totally lean, lean on that prayer, that experience that you had. And what about reason? You know, can, can you reasonably rationalize going up to this girl that you don't even know and saying, 
I think we're supposed to get married. I'm a Christian. I believe in God. God. God spoke to me. We're supposed to get married. She would say, you're psycho. You're crazy. I got a psycho crazy freak on me. Somebody help. Help. And so the, the, this, especially, just as advice, as your Sunday school pastor, I believe when you when you're, have to make very, very emotional decisions, like dating often is and finding a mate, and there's lots of you know, hurts and uh, good times, bad times, there's lust involved, there's uh, thinking, there's attractions, there's confusion involved in choosing and deciding who you're going to date. I would say, especially when you're making a very emotional decision, that experience should almost be lower than reason. And this is just me, my advice to you. But so often, I think, you know, the God card is played. You know, like someone could say, you know, God told us, told me we're going to be together. And then you start dating and uh, you realize she's annoying. And then you're like, you know, God, God now told me that we need to, I need to be single for a little while. It's like, what? No, don't use the God card. Tell her she's annoying. Tell her the real reason. Because then this poor girl, this poor girl is going to hate God and have this confusion about, did God really say we were going to be together? Did, and then did he not say we're going to be together? It's, and so, anyways, looking at, the, looking at this quadrilateral, trying to find God's will in, in an emotional decision. Let's transcend the dating thing a little bit. You know, when you're praying and, you, and there's lots of emotions wrapped up in what you're praying, it's, it's very common. You know, I, I could say, you know, it's very common to hear something wrong, to, to have a vision of, you know, the two of you together or whatever. It's like, well, that's coming from your own head. That's coming from your own hopes and dreams. It may or may not be God. You know, run emotional decisions, especially through the Bible, especially through a community of people that you trust, like your parents, friends, etc. Uh, and and uh, don't leave out reason. Um, and so that's, that's what I got to say about that. It's kind of a very heady lesson today in the Mill Sunday School, but sometimes that's what Mill Sunday School is about, learning. Learning's fun, right? Yeah. All right. Let's pray to close this morning. God, we do thank you for, for truth, that truth is absolute, that we can know your heart, that we can know your truth. You haven't just put us in the dark somewhere guessing at what is true and the, the ways to go. You have shown us through various methods, the Bible, the community, a church that's around us, our friends that are Christian believers. You've, you've shown us things, so many of us, obviously, through personal experience. God, we thank you for those experiences. We worship you, Jesus. We thank you for those. And we thank you that you've given us a mind to, to think through what is true and to, to guide, to be guided by you, to follow your directions. Father, we love you. We, we praise you knowing that, that it is you alone that, that provides truth. You are the truth maker. You are the creator sustainer of everything. God, we worship you. The closer we get to you, the closer we get to truth. And so, God, we we love you. We praise you for that. And everybody said, amen. All right, my peeps, peace out. Big church doesn't start till like 1130 now, so stick around, slap some high fives, get some more coffee. We'll see you next week.